Hello and welcome to Harlan First and Monroe Chapel United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're joining us for this episode. Uh, During this summer season, we have been going through the book of Exodus, looking at how the Hebrew people have continued to move forward in difficult times, much as we find ourselves in a similar wilderness journey during this time. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew, and it's great to have you with us. If you want to find out more or hear past sermons, you can go to www.harlandmethodist.com. So today we are continuing, as I said, through Exodus. The Hebrew people have been going in the wilderness with Moses leading them. And in today's sermon, we're actually covering a lot of ground because we're going to be going through Exodus chapters 19 to 24. This is the time when Moses receives the law from God on Mount Sinai. So they've been moving through the wilderness for about three months now when they come to Mount Sinai. This would have been a special moment for Moses because this is the same place where he had his initial encounter with God in the burning bush. And so this would have been a memorable place for him, very important. And as the Bible says, God descends to the summit of the mountain. And we remember that in most ancient Near Eastern religions, it was believed that the gods either lived on the mountains or came down and visited on the mountains because mountains were the highest structures available. And so God descends to the summit, and in the description in the Bible, it has a lot of storm imagery, you know, thunder, lightning, hail, dark clouds, things like that. Again, storm imagery was very common amongst near ancient Near Eastern religions, Canaanite religion. Uh, the storm god Baal had uh, the storm imagery, and so, you know, it was very common in those days to have the presence of God described in this way. And so, Moses is the mediator between the people and God. Most cannot get up too close. So in all, Moses actually goes up and down this mountain four times. I certainly hope he had his pedometer on because he's going to get some serious steps here. Well, it was believed back then that the presence of God is dangerous for people. God is just simply too holy and humanity is too sinful. So it was believed to be dangerous to be too close to God, which is very different than what we believe now. But they believed that they could literally die if they got too close or saw God's face. And so usually when somebody saw God in the Bible, it wasn't considered a blessing. It was considered a death sentence. And so, nonetheless, they prepare themselves with ceremonial cleansing, sanctification, washing their clothes, And they go up to the base of the mountain, but only Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law. Now, this law is massive, over 600 commands in all in the Old Testament. However, uh, the law is really scattered about. I mean, we don't have the whole law in Exodus 19 through 24. We have part of it, but there are other parts of the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy Not all of these laws are the same. Some of them are different versions of the same laws that are nonetheless different because they changed over time. Laws by their nature have to be adapted for new situations. And so this law was given to a nomadic agricultural group of people. After they established their kingdom and had kings, they had to adapt these laws. And so that's why you'll see the laws look a little different depending on where in the Bible you're reading them. You'll see a progression. So they're not 600 commands in this section we're looking at today. 
but nonetheless, there's a good amount of law here, and they are divided. You could divide the law into two sections. The Ten Commandments, which we're all pretty familiar with, and the Book of the Covenant. So first of all, let's go over the Ten Commandments. Very familiar, so we won't spend a lot of time here. But the Ten Commandments, the first one says, You shall have no other gods before me. Which we think we know what that means. Generally, we believe that that means that there are no gods. God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the only God and there are no others. But that's not exactly what this says. It's not claiming that there aren't any other gods. In fact, commandment number one is assuming that there are other gods. But it's telling Israel that they shall have no other gods before him. They shall worship God, Yahweh, alone and no other gods, for he is jealous. You know, I kind of tend to think that God decided not to blow their minds by trying to get them to see that all the other gods that they see in the world aren't real and that he's the only one. Instead, he starts small, and eventually they come to realize the truth, that he is the only God. But commandment number one just says, worship Yahweh and no other gods. The second commandment is that they are not to have any idols or images of God, which was certainly unique in that time. Most other religions were based on statues and idols. Number three is not to use God's name in vain or not to use God's name lightly. Now, people get confused on this one because we tend to think that this refers to all cussing and all swear words. And while it's true that we shouldn't use swear words and curse words of any kind, the New Testament is clear that we should avoid coarse speech. Nonetheless, the third commandment has nothing to do with most cuss words. It has to do with God's name and using it in vain, whether you're using it in an oath or just throwing it around. In particular, you know, it's funny because in our culture we tend to believe that the phrase, oh my God, or as it's more currently abbreviated to OMG, is the least offensive of the curse words. But actually, if you're religious, this should be the most offensive curse word, more offensive than any others, because you're actually breaking a commandment. So the fourth command is to keep the Sabbath day holy. The fifth command is to honor your parents. And then there's some obvious ones like don't murder people, don't uh, sleep with another person's spouse, don't steal, and don't bear false witness in court. And then the last one, the Tenth Commandment, is not to covet. In other words, not to want or desire your neighbor's possessions. And it's interesting how they list the possessions. They say that you should not covet your neighbor's house or wife or animals or slaves. Now, isn't that interesting that women and slaves are lumped together with animals and house? <laughs> You see, back then, men were the only ones who were considered to have full personhood. And so women and slaves were considered property. And I know that's disturbing, but it's just the way it is. And even the Ten Commandments are told from the point of view of a man, patriarchal society, and are assuming that women are property. So the second part of the book is the Book of the Covenant, and it has a lot more laws, and we're not going to go through all of them, but I'll just kind of, we'll, we'll take a quick sampling of these chapters to show us some of the good and the bad and the ugly. So let's start with the ugly. The Law of Moses regulates the practice of slavery. It does not abolish it. Uh, Hebrews, it, it was quite common that Hebrews who could not pay a debt would be 
they would become slaves in order to pay off the debt. Now, the law states that for Hebrew slaves, they are to be freed after seven years. Now, if it's a foreign slave, all bets are off. But for Hebrew slaves, they are to be let go after seven years. Now, if that slave happened to get a wife and children, if he happened to get a family during that time, the only way to keep his family is to remain a slave forever. He can go free after seven years, but he has to leave his wife and children behind. So if he wants to keep his family, he has to pledge loyalty to his master and remain a slave. That's in the Law of Moses. Uh, the Law of Moses also covers such things as what to do if a father wants to sell his daughter as a slave. Slavery back then, uh, when it came to selling your daughter, was kind of an arranged marriage in a way. And the law is actually supposed to protect the woman by not allowing the master who now owns her to sell her again. But, you know, the amazing thing is that according to this law, it's assuming that it's okay for a father to sell his daughter into slavery. And meanwhile, most of us are screaming, why don't you just abolish the slavery? Violence against slaves is regulated. If you beat your slave unconscious, for instance, if they get up in a day or two, there's no punishment for you because, after all, the slave is your property. No doubt preachers in southern states during the time of the Civil War had plenty of scriptures to preach on to support what they considered to be the godly practice of slavery. Thank goodness we don't read the Bible in such a literal way anymore, right? Or do we? <laughs> the death penalty is handed out pretty, pretty liberally in the law. If you hit or curse your parents, if you worship anyone other than Yahweh, you're to be killed. And some people think Muslims are violent. Oh my goodness. The Bible is just as violent as the Quran, the Muslim scriptures. The law covers such universal situations such as what to do if your ox gores someone to death. Well, you got to figure out, was your ox known to be violent before or not? And what do you do if someone steals your sheep? What one of us has not had an experience like that? <laughs> Oh, so there are, there's some ugly, there's some just stuff that's not necessarily very applicable to us, but there is a lot of good stuff in the law as well, such as do not oppress the alien who resides among you, for you were once aliens in Egypt. We could update the language today, and basically it's an undocumented immigrant. The law calls for us to care for undocumented immigrants, for the poor. Uh, for the poor, if we give a loan to them, we are not to pay to uh, charge interest. Uh, there's another law that says, For six years you shall work the ground, but the seventh year is a Sabbath year, and you're not to farm the land. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, there's not actual evidence that this was practiced, but it's interesting nonetheless. The law also includes some annual festivals that the Jews celebrate throughout the year, and then at the end there's a ceremony to ratify the covenant or agreement with God. So with that being said, an obvious question we need to ask is, how do these laws apply to us today? You see, many people just assume that these laws were given to humanity and were meant to be followed for all cultures for all time. In other words, that it has a universal application. Most of us, even if we read the Bible, we tend to skim or skip the law. But if you actually pay close attention to the laws, you're going to see a world and a culture that is much different than our own. It, it more closely resembles some of the barbaric laws in some of the Middle Eastern societies that we consider to be barbaric today. When we see things mentioned in the news about people being killed for certain infractions that we would consider to be crazy, just remember many of those things are biblical. But biblical is not always right 
or Christ-like. No, these laws are not universal laws meant for all people or for all times. These laws were never presented that way. They were presented as a special agreement or covenant between God and the Hebrews, a specific people for a specific time very different than our own. Interestingly enough, these laws are not that unique, but they are pretty typical of laws of other people groups at the time. So whatever you choose to believe about how much of these laws came directly from God and how much they are a product of people, there's no doubt that these laws reflect the culture of the time, which is why we find some of these laws morally repugnant. You don't have to try to justify them. They just are. Now, as I said, there's plenty of good laws, too, and some of them reflected progression, such as caring for the poor and immigrants and seeking justice. When we look at other sections of the law, we see other areas where we see the goodness of God revealed, caring for the unfortunate. But there's no doubt this law is meant for an ancient nomadic people. So while we can take some principles from it, I think it would be a mistake to try to follow these laws verbatim. In fact, I think if you tried to, you'd probably end up in jail, honestly. Plus, neither Jesus nor Paul advocate following these laws verbatim. You know, for instance, the idea of a daughter being sold to slavery is regulated in the law. But we just like to abolish slavery. You know, we we wish that the law would abolish slavery, but it doesn't. And so what we have done since then, since Jesus, is we've followed the Holy Spirit to go beyond that law and to bring it to completion by ending most forms of slavery, even though slavery still exists today. Uh, Back then, women were treated as property. So there's a law that says that if a man rapes a woman, he must marry her. And we can understand the intent there in a patriarchal society where uh, no man would marry a woman if she had been with another man already. Uh, This was meant to protect her so she would be under someone's care. But nonetheless, we are able today to disagree with this law and say that we think women are just as much people as men are, and instead of the rapist marrying her, how about he goes to jail, right? And you might be asking, who gives us the authority to do this? None other than Jesus Christ, the clearest picture of God that we will ever have. Jesus is a clearer image of God than Moses would have ever seen in his lifetime. And Moses saw more of God than anyone else at that time. He saw God in in big ways, but he did not see God as clearly as Jesus or those who knew Jesus. And that's why there are parts of the law of Moses that oftentimes do not look like Jesus. Jesus saw through a mirror dimly. Jesus is the full picture. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through correcting and fulfilling the law. Many times he would say, you've heard that it was said, and then he would quote an Old Testament law, and then he'll say, but I say to you, and sometimes he'll give a completely different meaning, or he'll expand it. Interestingly enough, in the case of marriage and divorce, Jesus even acknowledges that something in the Old Testament that it said was from God was actually just from Moses because the people were stubborn. And so it's Jesus who gives us the authority to think for ourselves, guided by the Holy Spirit, to go beyond the letter of the law and to go to the Spirit of Christ. Paul also advocates this point of view when he spends his life passionately arguing that non-Jewish Christians should not have to follow the law and that the law was only a shadow of things to come. So we are not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. So what function does the law of Moses have if we are not under it? 
It's not just a historical artifact or a remnant of history, although it does teach us how people thought about God in the past, as all historically-based stories do. Although Jesus and Paul did not advocate following the law verbatim, they did have high respect for for the law. Remember, they were both Jewish all the way through from birth to death, they were Jewish. In their minds, they were not throwing the law out, but through Christ, the law is fulfilled. So they are fulfilling the spirit of the law, which is different than following the letter of the law. A fulfillment is the realization of what something is pointing to, and the law is pointing to Christ. So what does the law of Christ look like? Well, it's not spelled out as detailed as the, in the Old Testament, but the closest thing to it is the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You know, that's where it has things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, do not seek revenge, love your enemies, things like that. I've always found it interesting that throughout time, every now and then we have fights in our nation about posting the Ten Commandments in public spaces, but I don't ever see Christians advocating for posting the Sermon on the Mount in uh, public areas. The Sermon on the Mount really covers a lot of ground, and we can easily extrapolate and expand on it using the principles that Jesus gave us. And that's where we get back to the examples of the rapist going to jail, slavery being ended, women being treated equally. None of those ideas come from the Bible. Uh, You might get hints of them here and there, but it never advocates where we are now because we have gone beyond some of those laws, following the Spirit of Christ and following the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of doing this can be scary if you're used to thinking that the Bible spells everything out for us. You know, if we can just look up a verse for everything in life, then little thinking on our own is required. So how do we know if we're going too far out of bounds? Well, the standard is Christ. I tend to think of a mental image of an astronaut going out on a spacewalk outside of their space station. In order to keep from floating away into empty space, they need a hose or something that tethers them to the station. Otherwise, they're just going to go floating off and face certain death. And in the same way, the law of Christ gives us a lot of freedom to think on our own with the wonderfully complex brains God has given us. It gives us a lot of freedom to roam and to follow the conclusions and the fulfillment of the law. But when we do, we always want to make sure we remain tethered to Christ. Is what we are doing or thinking about doing as individuals or a church tethered to the law of Christ, which is characterized by loving God or loving others and including our enemies? Is it in line with the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings of Jesus found in the Gospels? It's not that we can't also look to the Old Testament for help, but when we do, we have to know that it's not based on a clear of a revelation as is Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is clear. Moses was great. Jesus is better. So we have to look at the Old Testament law through the lens of Jesus and his teachings to see which parts more fully reflect Christ and which ones seem to contradict the spirit of Christ. So, for instance, you can be tethered to Christ and you can go roam around in the Old Testament law and you can see some principles that you can apply today, things such as caring for the poor and the outcast, and you can remain tethered to Christ. But if you go to a certain law that says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and you say you have the right to seek revenge against your enemies or those who are mean to you, then your tether tears. And you start to float off, even though you could argue you're being biblical, even though you're following a Bible verse, you've severed your connection to Christ and you're in danger 
of straying away. We want to remain tethered to Christ. The law of Moses was a big deal. It was a revelation. It was a progression in the right direction. But also, it was a law meant for a specific people in a specific time and situation, whereas we live under the law of Christ. So focus on the law of Christ, study the Gospels, and then when you go back to the Old Testament law, you can more clearly see which laws and principles more closely resemble the law of Christ and which ones do not. Amen. God bless and have a great week.